All right, we're jumping into Nehemiah 13 this morning. We are at the end of the series, Courageous Leadership, Uncertain Times, and it has been a marathon of a series. You've heard all the names uh, if you've been with us uh, throughout the last few weeks. Um, Nehemiah is a crazy book, and uh, I think Tori said it well, that, that um, we're going to step into a chapter that may be a little bit unexpected this morning. It's full of drama, full of drama. And boys and girls, uh, I want you to help your mom and dads out, and I want you to think this through with me. As I read through this, I want you to see where maybe God's people did something bad, okay? Maybe where, where the Israelites had messed it up. We're going to read all of chapter 13. So let's listen to, uh, let's listen to God's word as we wrap up this, uh, this book. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, vessels, tiles of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for it was the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was angry. I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the, pri the, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakor, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I then saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads for which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the cities, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring disaster on us in the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, 
But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had been married, women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, but they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of the people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on accounts of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the work, wood offering at appointed times, and the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I doubt there's a person in this room, even boys and girls, who has not heard that poem and probably memorized it three times over. It's probably the most famous nursery rhyme in all of Western civilization. The poem was first published back in 1797, in this book called Juvenile Amusements. But historians argue that its roots go far, far deeper than this. Get this. They say this poem is really about King Richard III in England back in 1485. That would make it over 500 years old. King Richard had one of the most powerful armies in the world, but at this famous battle of Bosworth Field, he lost it all. In fact, history tells us he was the last English monarch to have a really bad day in combat. It was his last day in combat, in fact. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. It's an interesting perspective, right? Because for me, it's not about kings, it's about a, an egg, right? clumsy and fragile, sitting on a wall, somehow falling to his demise. Every time without fail, every time that I've heard this story without fail, I think of breakfast. Anybody else? Bacon and scrambled eggs? Last Sunday we were left with this panorama of of Israel standing on top of this refurbished city wall, singing out praises to God. It was the kind of day that you wish would go on forever. Nehemiah's leadership had not only brought this fortified wall back to Jerusalem, he had led God's people back to the Lord. Just before this, there was this marathon worship service. You might remember if you've been in the midst of our series where where God's word was read aloud and the people realized their sin and they are weeping in confession and repentance. 
There is a revival that breaks forth. And at this one man's leadership, the city is now filled with hope again. God's people are in lockstep with his word again. They had made a corporate oath to give their lives to him with specific promises for what that would look like. And everybody believed things would be different from here on out. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. And with the victory in hand, it was now time for Nehemiah to move on, right? Back in chapter two of this story, you might remember Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to the king back in Susa. Remember that? He had heard about the ruins in Jerusalem, and so he had asked King Artaxerxes for permission to go and rebuild the wall. And the king must have liked the guy because he granted his request, but it came with conditions. The king asked him, he said, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? Chapter 7 tells us, Nehemiah put his brother in charge of the remaining task, and like that, he left town. And it's clear that most of Jerusalem never planned on him returning, right? The, the scripture makes that clear. Because as we come to this final chapter, likely years later, we find no one expected this unexpected return. And like any surprise homecoming, this should have been a celebration. That the faithful governor now comes to a restored hometown, thriving, godly town, You know, when you plant a seed, of course you want to see what grew. But the moment Nehemiah arrives, he's devastated. It's almost as if everything Nehemiah worked for was now gone. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Look at this, chapters 13, verse 4 to 5. Eliashib the priest was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and was related to Tobiah, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. Now at first glance, this sounds like no big deal, right? Eliashib gives his relative a place to stay in the temple. That's a generous thing to do. No one had been giving any grain or tied to the temple anyway, so there's empty rooms all over the place. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're off the hook on this quiz. But does anybody remember who Tobiah was? He's the enemy. He's the enemy of God's people. He's the opposition of God's plan. He's the antagonist of this entire story. Nehemiah 4, 7, back at the beginning, scroll back to the early days. Look at this. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to get closed, they were angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. So now years later, that same enemy is literally living and dwelling in the house of God, not as a convert, but as the adversary, right? Put away the sunshine and blue skies. It's poetic. I just heard the thunder. Here come the dark clouds. This story just took a turn into some ominous territory. Nehemiah had worked tirelessly his entire career, keeping the enemy outside of the city. Remember that? He said, we'll carry a brick in one hand and we'll carry a sword in the other. And now the enemy is dwelling within. And this concession in leadership by Eliashib put all of Israel now on tilt. Like, like a crack in the dam, it just spiraled. And before you know it, there's an entire city living in this tsunami of sin. When Jen and I were first married, she jumped into full-time ministry 
right alongside me. And I tell you, for nearly a decade, Jen was with me for every single youth gathering you can think of. Uh, I don't give her enough thanks. Um, but Jen had gotten really close to some of the girls in the youth group, as you can imagine, with that much time spent. And um, In fact, you might say she got a little too close. Because one night we're hanging out on the couch, newlyweds, loving life, and Jen says to me, my head itches. And I said, uh, it's wintertime, it's super dry, I mean, consider the season, Iowa. Jen says, no, it really itches. By the way, this is how, this is how you know I've got a good wife. She let me tell this story. <laughs> you know, they say every, every marriage has a honeymoon phase, right? And you know when it's over. Like, you know when the true love begins. Right then and there, that was the moment, right? Because for the first time in Jen's life, she had lice. And we didn't know it, but there was a massive outbreak in the youth group, right? None of the girls were talking about it, but Jen had hugged a few of the girls a little too close. And I kid you not, like, this is how young and dumb I was. So I'm holding this magnifying glass, and I said to Jen, as lovingly as I possibly could, I think we should just shave your head. <laughs> and she's bawling. But for the next month, we literally fumigated the entire house, right? There was not a fiber of the carpet or, or a shirt hanging in the closet that went unturned. The enemy had infiltrated within, and now it's war, right? Bleached the place. And still to this day, I kid you not, the girls will come up to us and they'll scratch their head and they'll go, Mom, my head itches. And you just see Jen just start to twitch. <laughs> it's not the lice anymore, it's the ticks, but I digress. <laughs> Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, right? And he finds the enemy has somehow landed within. The man who built the city wall now sees the enemy within the city wall, and not just the city wall, but he's within the Lord's house. It's clear no one thought Nehemiah would ever come back, right? Because this is an abomination. You might say, well, what's the big deal, right? It's just a grain room. A little compromise always leads to a little more, though, right? So Nehemiah, he, he sees this slippery slope and he goes on a full-on, all-out cleansing spree. Look at this in verse 7. I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was angry. So I threw the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought their vessels back to the house of God, grain offerings and frankincense. Nehemiah has hit temper tantrum level. Right, The calm, cool, collective, praying man that we've all come to love and know. He doesn't even hesitate for a moment. Because he knows more than anyone is cupbearer the king, a small little drop of poison destroys the whole chalice. And it always begins with a little compromise, doesn't it? It reminds me of that famous moment in John's gospel right at the very beginning where people are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. John chapter two, and the Passover celebration is at hand, and Jesus goes into the temple, and he seems the same kind of compromise. Money changers, abusing God's people, desecrating the temple, and what does he do? Grabs that whip and drives them out. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Israel was a complete mess. But Nehemiah didn't even know what he was stepping into on this day. The slippery slope just gets worse and worse and worse. Look at this in verse 10. 
The next scene, he says, I found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work fled the temple to their fields. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Let me translate that. The money's gone. The offerings are gone. The grain is gone. The same people who had promised never to forsake the temple had now left God's house behind. And with no money, the Levites, of course, went to find jobs elsewhere. They left an empty house unkept and unoccupied, ripe for squatters like Tobiah. And Nehemiah is so dumbfounded by this, you probably caught this already, that over and over again he begins this prayer. Just remember me, Lord. And the clouds get darker. Every promise that Israel had made, they broke. So first it was the temple, right? And now we're going to find it's the Sabbath. See, back in the early days of Nehemiah, Israel had promised to honor the Lord again by returning to this day of rest that their forefathers had left behind. Look at this back in Nehemiah 10.31. They said, for the peoples of the land, we will not buy from them on the holy day. This was a collective promise God's people made. Nehemiah leaves town. Nehemiah comes back. Chapter 13, he looks out over the city and the Sabbath might as well have been a Monday. Every business is open. Every trade imaginable is taking place. Verse 15, in those days I saw Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain, loaning them on donkeys. There was wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. It's an all-out party. The same people who had promised to set aside a day for worship have already stumbled back into their old ways. And it's not just the temple that's been desecrated by an enemy. It's not just the Sabbath that's been left behind. Israel is now bowing to idols by intermarrying those of other faiths. Look at this, Nehemiah 10, 10 verse 30. We will no longer give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This was a promise they made back when Nehemiah was with them. Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem. Nehemiah comes back. This is what he sees in verse 23, chapter 13, 23. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The issue, remember, isn't that they're marrying foreigners or people that speak different languages. The issue is that they're marrying people of other gods and worshiping their false gods. So first the temple, then the Sabbath, and now it's clear Israel has left the Lord again. All these distinct promises and as soon as Nehemiah leaves town, they reject every one of them. And think about this. On every page of the story to date, Nehemiah is like the poster child for a leader, right? We want our boys and girls to be just like him. Level-headed, logical, rational, praying. He's always stopping to talk with the Lord or reassuring the people around him, God's still with you. Look at this. Tell me this real fast. You got your kids with you right now. Tell me this. Is this an example of leadership you'd like for them to live into? So I confronted them, he says in verse 25. I cursed them and beat them and pull out their hair. Boys and girls, anybody think that's a good sign of leadership? It doesn't sound like Nehemiah, does it? It doesn't sound like good leadership, does it? It doesn't sound like the kind of leader we want our kids to be. So we have to ask, who ends a story like that? Three Sundays in a row now, we, we have read evidence of God's movement of, of people living into this new hope and this new future with celebration and song and victory and worship. 
We should have just stopped last Sunday while we were ahead. We were outside, the sun was out. Nehemiah is so overwhelmed by what he sees that he begins beating and pulling people by their hair to the ground. The dream, the, the vision, the pursuit is gone. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Nehemiah tries to systematically begin to reform the people back into righteousness. He first cleans out the temple. Then scripture says he appointed treasurers to receive the tithe again. Then he confronted the nobles of Judah, we're told by God's word, and he reinstates the Sabbath. Then he demands a new covenant from the people to quit marrying in these false marriages and false religions. And look at how the entire book ends. Think about this from a leadership perspective. Remember me, oh my God, for good. In other words, I tried. Why would God's word end this epic story on such a miserable page? I mean, the entire ordeal seems like a, a failure. I mean, what's the purpose of a wall if you're going to let the enemy right through the gates? What's the purpose of a, a new temple if you've left behind your faith? How do you end such an awesome story with, so then I pulled their beards to the ground? I mean, it literally leaves us with more questions than answers. I'm speculating here, but it seems to me that the best books we've ever read, and think about this with me, the best movies that we've ever seen, they leave you just like this, right in this place. You know, as you read that final paragraph or as you leave the theater, you know, you know in your heart of hearts, this can not the end. This cannot be the end. Right? The plot hasn't been resolved. And, and so you look at your friend as you're walking out to the car and you say to them, there's another one coming. I can feel it. There's a sequel. It's coming. And you have to wonder if maybe that's the entire point of this story. That what Nehemiah really reveals to us is that even the best leadership on this side of eternity will only go so far. There has to be something more. You know, the greatest leadership in the entire world can rebuild a city, right? But no human being can restore the soul. The most charismatic leader can take a dire situation and infuse it with words of hope and promise, but those words are just temporary. No human can offer eternity. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, they can't do it. Despite all the sermons from Ezra, despite all the pep talks from Nehemiah, despite the victory of a wall and all of God's people singing in worship, they go from standing to stumbling in shattered pieces all over again. What do we do with that? I think this is often the moment, at least for me, when I'm reading stories like Nehemiah where I start pointing the fingers. Like, yeah, Israel, get it together. But really, think about your own life for a minute. How many times have you tried to put Humpty Dumpty back again? How many times, try as you might, do you stumble back into that unhealthy pattern? How often do you realize that for some reason, in the moment, you're actually saying or doing something you ought not to do? See, this entire story leaves us waiting and longing and hoping, anticipating with expectation something more. When I was a young child, I used to visit my grandparents every summer, and the, the first thing I would do every time that I went 
I would find this music box and I would wind it up. And as the wheel began to turn, it would play this tune. I wish I knew what the tune was. Uh, I can still hear it in my head. But on this one particular visit, for some reason, Grandma had moved the box up on top of the piano. As I look back on it now, probably to keep it out of my hands. And I remember all the adults went into the room, the next room for the chat to drop off the luggage, and I climbed up on the bench to get this music box down. And as I went to grab it, I slipped. And as I went crashing down, I put my arm out to catch my fall, which means the music box went up in the air and shattered on the tile. I still remember that moment like it was yesterday. I was physically sick. That was grandma's favorite music box. How in the world am I going to tell her? And I remember being so full of, of shame and disappointment, and I brought her these, these pieces, right, with, with this agony inside because I knew I had messed up. And as I held out this, this shattered leftovers of a box, I'm sobbing, and I remember I asked her, I said, it'll never play again, will it? You know what she told me? She said, no, I think it's broken forever. What do we do with that? Look at this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature of children of wrath like the rest of humankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, staring at our pieces on the floor, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Can I get an amen? What makes a successful leader? That's really the question throughout this whole series. You know, when Nehemiah left town, everything was a win for him. The wall was built. Confidence of God's people restored, parades of celebration, singing in the streets. But in the end, it was all temporary. Life is still broken. God's people still broken. Even the wall will not stand forever. See, I'm convinced the best of leadership is that which leads others to Christ. When you've tried to better yourself time and time again and, and you keep falling back into the old habits despite all the counseling and books that you've read. Or when you scroll through the news and you feel like no one, no one can get us out of this mess. Or parents, when you've led your children the best you know how and then you watch as they walk astray. Or when you've tried everything to repair that, that damaged and worn down relationship and it's still stuck in neutral. There is only one who can put your life back together again. I'll never forget that moment as I held out those shattered pieces to Grandma. She, she took me in her arms and she said, Ryan, no mistake you can ever make will make me or God love you less. I still remember the overwhelming power of those words. Romans 5, 6 says it like this, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Nehemiah couldn't save God's people because in the end, there is only one 
who can take the messed up, shattered, broken disgrace of life and make it new again. And that is Jesus Christ. What we do with that, how we live that, that's up to us. Let me pray for us.